0: Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I decided to try something new using my iPad and I brought uh, actual notes for a backup copy just in case which I proceeded to leave at my office this morning so we'll start by praying for my iPad that uh, it endures <clears throat> well it's an honor to address you guys this morning it's I, I preached at least once a week, if not multiple times a week, for about eight years. Well, since December, I've preached three times. Um, so coming up on a year, i preached three times. And that, that means a, t- a few things for you guys. Number one, for my wardrobe, it means I no longer have preaching attire. So number two, it means that, uh, well, I'm really out of practice, and you'll have to have a little bit of grace if I fumble. And number three, it just means that I'm really excited and honored and appreciated the opportunity to do this. We're going to start with the Word of God this morning in Philippians. So... I want to jump there real quick. Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Well, let's go ahead and start in verse 5. Um, No, no, 7 it is, Ryan. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is the Apostle Paul. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So, the Apostle Paul had a lot going for him, right? In fact, from a worldly perspective, Paul essentially, as a Pharisee, as a Jew, had everything going for him. He rattles it off in 5 and 6. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, um, as to righteousness of the law, blameless. So Paul had everything going for him from a worldly perspective. But he willingly parted with all of that. And beyond just parting with it, he says he regarded it as trash and as worthless, as rubbish, compared to just having Christ. And so the, the, the point from that text is that the Apostle Paul was able to, to structure and to live his life in such a way as to show that Jesus was supremely valuable. He was able to live his life in such a way, to, to, to disregard certain things and to regard other things in such a way that he was demonstrating the infinite worth and, and value and preciousness of Jesus Christ, Right? How did he do that? He did that by counting everything outside of Christ as nothing. And in so doing, he showed the value of what he was holding on to. Let me give you an illustration in case it doesn't make sense. I just Googled uh, expensive car. And the first one I got back was a 1931. Is anybody a car buff in here? Bugatti Royale Kellner Coupe, 1931. A car, apparently in 1987, that sold for $8.7 million. That's a nice car. say you owned that car. It was in your garage this afternoon while you're at church. The way you treated that car would tell the rest of us how much you valued it. Wouldn't it? The way you treat your car tells us how much you value it. So if I were to come visit your house and walk in and you've got an armed security guard, <laughs> you've got 24-7 live surveillance, you know, you've know, you got padlocks and the state-of-the-art security system, I would know how you valued that car. And if your, if your two-year-old son was running for the car and you like tripped him or karate-chopped him to keep him from touching your car, I would not only get how much you valued your car, but how much you valued everything else in your life in relation to your car. Right? Most people in the world, they would go all out to protect such a car. Um, and they're demonstrating, whether you have an 8.7 million dollar car in your garage or not, our lives are structured in such a way that we know, other people know, what we value, right? So the Apostle Paul, he structured his life in such a way that he was preaching this message, I value Christ supremely. Right? Christ is more valuable than everything looking from the outside in being a Pharisee for Paul being circumcised on the eighth day being trained at the feet of Gamaliel being from the tribe of Benjamin those things are worthless to him worthless but, but knowing Christ being found in Christ in Christ alone that is supremely valuable that's how he lived his life <clears throat> and the man we're going to look at this morning is a man named John Patton there's a squeaky board right underneath my foot <laughs> I should just move an inch um John Patton, John G. Patton, John Gibson Patton, um, his life preached that exact same story. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. I, I really went back and forth with Dennis as far as who we should look at. He's not technically a reformer, but he's of the reformed tradition. He is He is very reformed with a capital R, but he's not a reformer when it comes to the Protestant Reformation. So... Usually, when you talk about the Protestant Reformation, you're talking about dates. 1517 is the day that uh, October 31st, 1517, which is why today is the Reformation Day, is the day Luther nailed his 95 theses to the, the church door, uh, the castle door at Wittenberg. Um, so you're usually talking 1500, 1600. We're talking 1800. So this is just a man who stands head and shoulders above the rest as far as a solid reformed Christian that is going to do us just tons of good to look at. That's what we're looking at, him. But he he was a Reformed tradition. He was a Presbyterian from Scotland. So he's as Reformed as Reformed gets. Um, Thoroughly Calvinistic in his understanding of salvation. But what we're going to mainly focus on this morning, instead of his theology, is how his theology turned him into a man who had everything going for him, but who willingly counted all those things as worthless, as lost, for the sake of serving Christ. All right, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at how John Patton's life just preached the supreme value of Jesus. We're going to look at it and say, now that man loved Christ. That's what I want you to walk away with. I want you to walk away saying, the Jesus of John Patton is truly infinitely precious. And if we do that, then we've accomplished our goal this morning so that the question I'm a very structure oriented guy in my preaching the question that's going to drive our discussion this morning is this how does John Patton show us the value and worth and glory of Jesus Christ what in Patton's life shows us our Lord is supremely valuable and I think I have uh, six things for you So, so I've got lots and lots of time first of all his family life as I said John Gibson Patton usually just called John G. Patton was born to James and Janet in May of eighteen twenty four. Let me just uh, here to show you. By the way, this is the book that I got most of the information from. It's a it's, it's just a first of all, it's a really cool book. It's really neat um, it's a really neat bound, binding. But aside from that, it's an it's an awesome book that uh, I verified they do have available for order at the bookstore if you find this story interesting after all this. Um, but he was it's a, it's an autobiography, so you're gonna hear a lot of first person. Born in eighteen twenty four southern Scotland, um, they lived just, just north of England. John was one of nine children. And in his autobiography, um, he spends just a ton of time telling us about his parents. His relationship to his dad and his mom is, is unbelievable. I want to spend some time explaining that to you. His dad was named James, as I said. He was a stocking maker, which meant he made some kind of garments for men. Um, John was extremely, extremely close to his dad. It's, it's very moving. There, there are three things I want you to know about his dad. First of all, at one point in the book, John's telling us about how his dad became a Christian. His dad was 17 when he was born again, and John isn't even in the, and John isn't even in the picture yet, right? He's 17 years old. He's still living at home and at the age of 17 when he became a Christian he started to lead his family which would be his mom and his siblings in having family devotion every day. They called it family worship and they would sing, pray and very importantly read the Bible and discuss its meaning. And I want you to listen to what John says about that practice his father started at age 17. I'm going to quote here from the biography. And so began in his 17th year That blessed custom of family prayer in morning and evening, so twice a day, which my father practiced probably without one single avoidable omission until he lay on his deathbed 77 years of age. When even to the last day of life a portion of scripture was read and his voice was heard softly joining in the Psalms and his lips breathed the morning and evening prayer. None of us children can remember that any day ever passed unhallowed thus. No hurry for market. No rush to business. No arrival of friends or guests. No trouble or sorrow. No joy or excitement ever prevented at least our kneeling around the family altar while the high priest, their father, led our prayers to God and offered himself and his his children there. Isn't that outstanding? In 60 straight years... Nine out of nine children said, Dad never missed one day. Never missed a day. Don't forget that for the rest of the story. Because at some point in the story, I hope you're going to be thinking to yourself, what makes a man this kind of man? What makes a John Patton a John Patton? Well, we can't ignore his dad. We can't ignore the impact in life that his dad led for him and the influence he had upon him. And if we if we look around and wonder at the end of this, why aren't there more John Pattons? Again, we can't ignore his dad. Maybe it's because there's not many James Pattons, and John Pattons today. Second thing you need to know about is Dad James. <laughs> this is awesome. They lived uh, they lived four miles away from their church, right? And they had nine kids, so that means they're walking. They don't have a buggy big enough for eleven people. So eight-mile round trip. When was the last time you walked eight miles? Raise your hand if you've done the last six months. Okay. All right. Quite a long way, right? Just to go to church. They had a huge family. Uh, Forty years, for 40 years, from the time he was converted, for 40 years walking, his father missed church three times. Okay, John makes a big point of this. Only quote. He says, quote, once by snow, so deep that he was baffled and had to return. So, one of the three times, he was on his way to church, got caught in a snow drift and had to turn around and go home. Once by ice on the road, so dangerous he was forced to crawl back up a certain hill on his hands and knees after having descended it so far with many falls. And once by the terrible outbreak of cholera in the town where the church was. Those were three times you missed. The, the last occasion is my favorite. He says that all communication between the town and the surrounding villages was prohibited. You know, it was under quarantine because of cholera. John says, quote, The farmers and villagers, suspecting that no cholera outbreak would make my father stay at home on Sabbath, sent a deputation to my mother on Saturday evening and urged her to restrain his devotions for once. So one of the three times in 40 years he missed church, A group of men had to come to church and physically say, you cannot come to church tomorrow, all right? So, all all laughing aside, what happened to us? What's happened to us? Where are the men? Where are the men like that? What happened to all the real men? I I wish I had the time to tell you about the joy that John says, all the children had as they walked four miles to church and four miles from church and conversed with dad about the sermon and about what was preached and what was taught that day. And as his dad conversed with other men on their way to and from church. And I just pray that God would raise up 50,000 more James Pattons in America. Amen. One more thing about dad. I know and I'm spending an inordinate amount of time on him because, again, he had such a huge role and a lot to teach us. And he's, a lot of the book is devoted to as well. So, The third thing you need to know about Dad, in the home that John grew up in, right smack dab in the center of the house, John describes this little itty-bitty room that's essentially a converted coat closet. He calls it the sanctuary of our cottage home. And after each meal, Dad would retire, excuse himself from the family gatherings, retire to this little closet, and go into the room and shut the door. John says they, all the children knew exactly what Dad was doing that behind those closed doors, prayers were being poured out for them, as, as the high priest of old used to plead for and intercede for God's people. He said he occasionally heard his father's trembling echoes pouring out from under the door, sounding as if he was pleading for his life. And I think it's amazing that the children would tiptoe past the room, because they didn't want to disturb the holy interchange that was taking place in the closet. He says, although the rest of the world might not know where the glow and glimmer and smile on dad's face came from, we knew. We knew it was the glow of his soul having fellowship with the almighty God. Right? His father, aside from the Lord Jesus, was the single most defining character in his life. And and during the, the difficult moments, which there were a million difficult moments in John Patton's life, during those difficult moments, he would go back to this really penetrating question he continually asked himself. And I want this to haunt us in a godly way. He would ask himself, when he was struggling, ready to burn out, he would say, my father walked with God, why may not I? My father walked with God, why may not I? And I don't know if you're like me, I, 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 I can't, I don't have that same question to ask myself. It's not true of me, and it might not be true of you, but I want it so badly for my son. And I realize that most of you here aren't, currently dads with stay-at-home kids a few of you probably are but but everybody in here is a son a daughter father mother aunt uncle grandma and grandpa right or else you have to be at some point can they say my grandma walked with god why can't i are they going to be able to say that about you I really need to move on and get to the guts of the story, but there's just one last nugget I want to share with you they They adored each other and loved each other so much, and I, I just don't want you to get the wrong idea james James the dad was a very, very masculine man he wasn't a girly man; he was the log splitting bow hunting eat raw meat you know kind of manly manly man, but he was also very, very affectionate toward his children and it's so great to see that you don't have to choose between the two, right. You don't have to choose between being affectionate towards your children and being a man's man. When, when John was grown up, let's say he was around, I don't know, the, he doesn't say the exact age, let's say he's around 17. He's getting ready, he's packing his clothes, he's getting ready to leave home for the final time. 1838, this is, or 18, 1830. So he's not going to ever come home. His parents realize we're never going to see him again and they don't. His dad walks 12 miles one way just to... the last few moments with his son this was so touching to me and just to say goodbye to him one last time John records a story he says that um, he says that as he was walking he could see out of his peripheral vision his dad's lips moving the whole time they were walking and he knew his dad was just offering up prayers for his son and when they finally got to the point where they had to part ways his dad grasped his hand and said God bless you my son your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil And they separated. And they're both crying so hard, and they're both really manly men. They don't want to turn around and like, oh, give me another hug. So they just keep walking, right, with their backs towards each other. But John says as soon as he got around the first bend and knew his dad couldn't see him anymore, he circled back around a little hill, climbed up, and he just wanted to peek over the hill and see his dad one last time. So much he adored his dad. So he just peeks over the hill to look at his dad one last time. And what does he see? He sees his dad had circled back around and was peeking over the hill because he wanted to see his son one last time. And they caught each other's glances, cried, and then left. Now that was the last time they ever saw each other on this earth. You can't make that kind of relationship up, right? That's awesome. It's so precious. Just praise God for real men who are, loving, who are willing to love and raise up such godly offspring. Guys, there's nothing we can do about our dads. Maybe you had a great dad, maybe you didn't. But, but oh, to be such parents or grandparents ourselves. When you look at John Patton's family, when you consider his mother whom he praises as high as he does his father, when I think about the Patton family living in southern Scotland, I just see a display of the worth of Jesus right there. Right? Don't you? I just see on display for the world, Christ is supremely valuable. When I look at their family, my heart says, Christ is glorious. They counted everything else in the world as rubbish. They chiefly valued knowing and loving and following Jesus Christ. And I want that for my family and for yours. So the question then, as we transition to the next point, is what is your family saying about the worth of Jesus? Will your children writing their biographies in 40 years say, no hurry for market, no rush to business? No arrival of friends or guests, no trouble or sorrow, no joy or excitement ever prevented at least our kneeling around the family altar. What's your family saying about the worth of Jesus? <coughs> number two. Remember our question here is, what in John Patton's life shows us that our Lord is supremely valuable? Well, number two, the first one is his family life. The second one is his call to the missionary field. After he left his dad there uh, on the road, he made his way to Glasgow, Scotland. Eventually, the church in Glasgow called him to be the city missionary, which is kind of like a church planting evangelist paid by the association. They planted John in the worst part of the city. They planted him in the East St. Louis of, of Scotland. And, and he labored very hard, just going from family to family, visiting people, encouraging them, pointing them to Christ. And by God's grace, folks were actually born again. It's spectacular. And we see one of the, uh, there's a parenthesis here, we see one of the million examples throughout history that a warm, rich Calvinism and a full-bodied personal evangelism are not opposed to each other, but, but one requires the other. And one without the other, whether it's any passionate evangelism without a full-bodied Reformed theology or Reformed theology without a passionate, warm evangelism... One of them are defective without the other. Amen? Anyways, pretty soon, through their evangelism and discipleship efforts, God used Patton to establish an actual church in their midst, just a few years. And the church was thriving. It was spreading like wildfire. People were, they were seeking true conversions. They were growing genuine disciples. They weren't just seeking some easy decisions. I mean, these people were changing their lives, and God blessed it. And here's what happened that this mid 20s young church guy, seven years younger than me, uh, church planner found himself pastoring a senior pastor of a church with an average Sunday attendance of five to six hundred, right? He, he's pastoring the Concord Baptist Church of Glasgow, Scotland. But strangely, his heart and his passion began to shift. And God was stirring him up to go to the foreign mission field. I, I just can't even fathom that because I know people who have planted churches or been pastors of successful churches and they. You couldn't pry them away from that church, you know, if their life depended on it. And here's this guy, brand new, church is booming, he's popular, he's got fame, and he wants to leave. He's ready to go to the foreign mission field. It's not because he heard God's voice saying, go to the mission field, John. It's because he was reading the Bible, because he saw that God loves when people take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And because he heard about this group of islands called the New Hebrides, this group of islands where that that were currently completely unreached, untouched, and Christless and he was compelled to go. He says, quote, nearly all were dead set against the, appro- the proposal to leave. His church tried to bribe him to stay by offering him a parsonage and a bigger salary. They also tried to guilt him into staying. <laughs> the most, my favorite, the, the most interesting opposition was from an old faithful Christian man. He doesn't, he doesn't knock on this guy. He says he is an old faithful man named Mr. Dickerson, Mr. Dickerson knew about the New Hebrides, the place where John wanted to go. He'd heard the same stories, which I'll tell you here in a few minutes. But long story short, the New Hebrides are known for cannibalism. Okay, Mr. Dickerson looks at John Patton and says, Son, the cannibals! You'll be eaten by cannibals! And John says, (laughs) Mr. Dickerson, you are advanced in years... And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our original Redeemer. Amen. Classic John Patton. That's his heart. He's saying, you're right, Mr. Dickerson. I might die. I might be eaten. But if I die, I'm going to die for Christ. And if I die, I'm going to die in Christ. And if I die, I will be raised one day because of Christ. So I go to die. See, Patton was going because he valued Jesus more than anything. Because he valued Christ more than he valued fame. Because he valued Jesus more than he valued being a senior pastor of a large church. and Big numbers, big honor, big reputation. He felt Christ was more valuable than the comfortable transportation they had. And the nice western food and comfortable houses. He knew Jesus was more precious than all that, and so he willingly said goodbye to those things, and he went to those islanders to tell them about (coughs) Jesus. I say he, actually they, because just before he went, he married a young woman named Mary. He usually calls her uh, his dear wife. So the two of them now, they leave Glasgow, and they head out, on a long ship journey which has a story in itself but we'll skip over that I want to go to the third point which is uh, the third thing that we that displays the glory of Jesus is his decision to go to and stay at an island called Tana okay Tana T-A-N-N-A which is part of the New Hebrides so let's say why don't you in your minds drive to St. Louis get on a plane at Lambert Airport and fly to Honolulu right? wouldn't that be terrible
1: just,
0: <laughs> just fly to Honolulu stop in Honolulu to refuel, get back on a plane, keep heading the exact same direction, southwest, towards Sydney, Australia. Two-thirds of the way from Honolulu, Hawaii, to Sydney, Australia, if you look out your plane window, you're flying over that set of islands that he went to, right? Today it's called Vanuatu, then it was called the New Hebrides. uh, Actually, named after Scotland. Um, And you should know something really important about these islands. Until, Until 1839... As far as anybody can tell, which is in John's lifetime, right? No Christian ever, ever set foot on the islands of the New Hebrides. Until 1839. None. But in, 19, in 1839, that changed the New Hebrides when the first ever missionaries to the islands, from Scotland, I believe, landed on the shores of the island of Aramanga, which is near Tanna, where John's going to go. The guy's name was John Williams, and he had his buddy with him. They landed on November 30th, Right? A few minutes later, not hours, but minutes later, after they landed, the ship, which is how the story gets back to us, I guess, the ship has just turned around and is sailing away. They drop them off, the ship's sailing away. The two men are on the shore getting their stuff together, getting ready to head inland. Natives come out to meet them, beat them with clubs, and eat their bodies. And that's what Scotland knows of the New Hebrides. That's the story Scarlet has in New Hebrides, that the first two men didn't make it off the beach before they got eaten by cannibals. That's what John knows when he set sail for this stretch of islands. And it was just 19 years earlier. I mean, it's not, not, not that long, right? 19 years. But there they went. They arrived in 1858, Mr. and Mrs. Patton and one other missionary couple. They were assigned to this infamous white people-hating island of Tana. They split it in half. The Pattons would take this half the other couple would take the other half. And whatever the cost, they were not going to run for their own lives or own comfort. They were going to show by their lives and by their devotion and ultimately by, the, by their sacrifice that Jesus is more valuable than all the world. They were going to show Philippians 121, Paul says, even death is gain in Christ. Amen. Unfortunately, this is where the sorrows began because four months after they landed, they, uh, they built a makeshift home in what looked to them like a good spot um, and Mary you can do the math here she obviously got pregnant on the boat over you can figure that out but uh that she had a baby boy right for two days everything seemed great but uh you know their family's there Mary's trying to recover obviously John had delivered the baby himself she's trying to recover they're in, John is finally a dad and he's just loving this because he loved his dad so much But then suddenly, two days later, his dear darling, as he says, came down with malaria. They found out later they're going to continue to get malaria over and over because they built their house on this really bad uh, swamp, basically. The islanders knew it, and they hated them so much they would never tell them that that's why they were getting sick. After a month of wrestling and fighting off the illness, Patton writes, so they've been there five months, Patton says, quote, diarrhea ensued and symptoms of pneumonia with slight delirium at intervals. And then, in a moment, altogether unexpectedly, Mary died on the 3rd of March. To crown my sorrows and complete my loneliness, the dear baby boy, whom we had named after her father, Peter Robert Robson, was taken from me after one week's sickness on the 20th of March. Let those who have ever passed through any similar darkness as of midnight feel for me, and as for all others, it will be more than vain to try to paint my sorrow. So five months in, wife died first Sunday you know you can't grasp that you can't grasp that kind of sorrow maybe some of you in here can but I can only imagine having arrived on a a heathen island filled with people who hate me and who have one desire my destruction separated from anybody who speaks my language and not having he didn't have any contact with other missionary couples so he literally had zero contact with another person to say I'm sorry for your loss I feel for you brother Less than two years of marriage, his wife is gone, and he loses his baby boy in the middle of the South Pacific. And, and so as I read this, I'm thinking, leave. Go home. Right? People love you at home. Go home and let somebody put your arm around you and say, it's okay, everything's going to be fine. They knew you built your house in a dangerous spot, and they hated you so much they didn't tell you. Leave. But you could figure out he, he obviously didn't. And I know I think about a parable that Jesus told. There was a man who by God's grace one day in the middle of a field stumbled upon a rare jewel, a hidden treasure, right? You know this parable? And although the field was very expensive, that man went home immediately, put every one of his possessions up for sale, and he went and he bought the field right then and there. And best of all, Jesus says, he gave up everything with joy. The, 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 the treasure was worth so much to him that selling everything he ever owned made him happy just because he was going to gain that treasure. And see, in the parable, of course, Christ is the treasure, right? Patton sold everything dear to him for the sake of Christ, his treasure. And by God's grace, he did it with joy. He lost everything, like Paul. He counted it all as worthless compared to gaining Christ. And you just sit back with Paul and his this great doxology and say all oh, the incomparable riches of this treasure who is Jesus. How much this treasure is truly worth. He's worth it, beloved. He's worth, he's worth everything. Number four. The fourth thing in John's life that shows his willingness to, to uh, his willingness to trust God's control of circumstances and situations, rather, is the fourth thing that shows the value of Jesus. Let me tell you a bit about the, uh, the island of Tana and its inhabitants. It was 75 square miles, so, I mean, I guess that depends on how you look at it. It's pretty small as far as islands go, um, but it was chock full of natives. There's tons of people on this island. It's basically exactly what you think of when you think of tropical island. I mean, the, the trees, the beautiful beaches, all the exotic fruit and everything like that, the deep blue Pacific Ocean. It's great, right? except for the people. (laughs) If you could just take the people off of it, the island sounds like an amazing place. Um, The whites called them savages or heathens, of course. They were as primitive as primitive can get. When Patton arrived on the island in 1858, he was shocked to find that everybody was naked. They didn't wear clothes. Um, Sometimes he said they made feeble attempts to cover up a few areas, but really there was no such thing as modesty. They walked around naked. Uh, They had no government. They were scattered all over the island into little tiny groups. Each group had their own chief, their own rules, their own principles. Um, And they lived in huts. They foraged for most of their food. All these people on this one island. And they tried to grow some very primitive crops. But that's the island. It was ruled by two things. The club and sacred men. The rule of the island was was a club. Everywhere that men went, they had a caveman-like club and a sack full of throwing rocks. Um, and they would use those to hit their opponent on the head, stun them, and, and beat them to death on the island of Tana. Murder was no big deal whatsoever. Um, people were murdered literally every day. In fact, the more murders you had successfully accomplished, the higher up your status was in this society. So you were rewarded and honored for being a murderer. If your wife wasn't carrying your load like you told her to, you were perfectly justified to beat her to death and let your otherwise take that as a warning.
1: Um,
0: as the ultimate display of sinfulness and depravity, once, uh, once you killed somebody that you disliked, your village would get together, together and seriously eat that person. So they were full-fledged, honest-to-goodness cannibals. Patton says they practiced it so much that they got a wicked desire to taste human flesh. They would go to the graveyard sometimes and un- unearth dead people to, to eat their remains. They-, they had no value and no understanding of the sanctity and value of human life. This right? um, is reflected not only in their cannibalism, but even worse, it's reflected in the fact that if, uh, oftentimes they had too many children they didn't have no any ways to stop it, obviously, so they would... Uh, just set their babies outside the door of their huts until they died from exposure, because they didn't want them. I mean, that's the mark of a lost and degenerate society, isn't it? No value for the sanctity of life. Murder. Which is the same thing, I guess. Uh, They thought the gospel was foolish, which I'm going to get there in a second, and the lack of of, uh, clothing, (laughs) the lack of modesty. I just think that sounds strikingly similar to our society today. Well, I said Tana was ruled by the club and by their sacred men. Sacred men being capitalized. They were, they were basically what you think of when you think of witch doctors. Um, they, commun- they believed they communicated with evil spirits. The Tanese believed that there was an evil spirit who ruled over the island and controlled sickness and death and bad things. And when they were mad at somebody, they would go to the sacred men, and they would go through these strange rituals and get the man to curse this person. Uh, and that's where they believed that all the bad things and sicknesses came from, these curses. And that means that anytime time anybody got sick, they assumed their enemy was trying to hurt them, or they assumed their enemy was out there cursing them, and so it was this perpetual cycle of war, curse, war, curse. These islanders were so primitive, this is, this is amazing, they had never even considered the idea that spoken language could be communicated through the written word. They never even t- dreamt of that. They'd never seen writing. They'd never seen anything. So, um, until the missionaries got there, they never even thought that you could write something down. I think that's sufficient, hopefully, to give you an idea of who the people were. Uh, Patton's, Patton's approach to missions is very simple. You go into the people. You live among them. You try to learn their language once he began to get an idea for the language, he began to reduce it into written components, and then immediately started translating the Word of God. Right? Without the Word of God, nothing. So immediately he began translating the Word of God. It's such a must. And then he befriended them and helped them, loved them, poured out his life for them. Um, all the while, every single day, his practice was to go to a different village every day and have his family worship, except have it in the middle of a village. Right? He would have the same thing. He would sing a song, pray a prayer, read scripture and explain it. Maybe somebody would be there to listen. Maybe they wouldn't. Just village to village to village. And translating scripture and handing it out to them and helping them learn how to read. And so doing, he was saturating the, the, the island with the word of God. And after years of labor, sacrifice, constant danger, here's the result. They hated him more than ever. Sorry if you were hoping for some good news there. At first, they listened to what he had to say, mostly because it was new. And he would give them gifts sometimes to get them to come. But over time, they were progressively hardened. They would, they would come to the service and mock him or laugh at him or tell him to stop talking. All of the sicknesses that happened on the island, people started to blame him and to blame Yahweh God, the God of Missy. That's what they called him. Missy for missionary. One of the most amazing things to me is that the islanders, as they began to understand... I put a picture of the gospel together that he was explaining. They thought it was foolish. Isn't that amazing? That's exactly what Paul said too. Here's this group of islanders who are perishing who are as foolish as foolish gets. And they hear the gospel and say, "Oh, I'm foolish. I mean, that's what Paul said. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. The whole time he was on the island of Tana, there were always people threatening him. More times than I can count, he tells of having uh, painted men surrounding his hut at night, whispering, waiting to sling a stone at him or fire one of the muskets they traded for. He would lock the doors and hunker down until it was over. Amazingly, several days, he says, while he went about his chores and building projects and stuff like that, certain men would follow him all day in silence, pointing a musket at his head. Like, wouldn't say anything, just follow around, because they wanted so badly to kill him. And he never figured out what it was that restrained them, or who. They killed white people all the time. They killed and ate white people as often as they could. And they had this strong desire to kill him, but they never did. I'll give you an example here. Um, At one point, a, a gathering of the tribes had just decided that they wanted to kill Missy, John Patton. And he somehow just escaped that situation, and it looked like everything was getting calmer. And then this is what he says... But my enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life, however calmed or baffled for the moment. Within a few days of the above events, when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his axe. But a chief snatched the spade with which I had been working and dexterously defended me from instant death. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made, and yet with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on cavalry, and now sweating the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. The next day, a wild chief followed me about for four hours with his loaded musket, and though he often directed it towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he weren't even there. Fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and will protect me until my allotted task is finished. That was his life, just every single day. People walking around wanting to kill him. And what truly shows the the worth of Jesus is that he just kept on preaching. Just kept on, kept on, kept on preaching. To those who wanted him dead, to those who had murdered another white missionary couple on a neighboring island, uh, to those who watched his wife die and didn't ever help, he just kept on preaching. Even when he had guns pointed in his face. At first, I thought it was funny, but uh, I got used to it eventually. I don't know how many times somebody would come up to him with a club or a gun and and say they were going to kill him. And he would walk up to them, take their musket, point it down and say, I love you. I'm your friend. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. And turn around and walk away. That's it. Just just reach up, grab the gun, put it down and say, stop it. You're being stupid and walk away. I'm like, where did that come from? Why didn't they shoot him in the back of the head as he walked away? He did that. He persisted in preaching and sharing God's word until it became apparent one day that literally, I can't explain the story of the whole situation, but literally one day the entire island, all the, 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 all the enemy tribes had gotten together and cohorted together and said, it's time to kill the missionary. So they, he found out they were, all, they were all in cahoots and they were literally headed his way. I mean, walking, coming with swords or coming with, with, uh, with muskets and, and, and um clubs thank you he finds out and he goes and he hides in a tree and he spends the entire evening up in the tree and amazingly it was was the worst day of his life for sure but amazingly through God's sovereign providence a ship comes near enough he's able to signal it gets on a ship and he escapes with his life worst day of his life and one of my favorite little lines in the whole book was as he's talking about sailing away from all those murderous cannibal missionary hating God despising natives He's at the back of the ship as they're sailing away looking at the island. And, you know, he's been with them for years. He's literally poured his family, everything he has, into them. And they just try—they just ran him off by trying to kill him. You know what he doesn't do? He doesn't spit at them and say, good riddance. He looks back over all of them and says, my dear islanders. And I just, I just highlighted that. I just, for me, that was special. Like, my dear islanders. Do you have that kind of love in you after that? After those years that you could still affectionately think back on these people who are created in the image of God and perishing and still say, my dear islanders, how I wish things had been different for us. Where did that come from? Where did that kind of affection for those people come from? Only from Christ. Only because Christ was so incomparably valuable to him was he propelled to love them with this undying love and just give himself over and over and over to him because Christ was his treasure. 11.33. Okay. I'll move faster. Um, Let me give you the fast forward version here real quickly of what happened in his life. The, uh, The other missionaries to surrounding islands decide that since he's been run off of Tana, they really need some money. You know, missionaries always need money. So he's really, he's been great missionary has got amazing testimony let's go send him around the world and raise up a bunch of money for us so that's what they do um, he goes around telling his testimony and not only do they get just an obscene amount of funds they buy their own boat and all that for the missionary society but um, he also through his testimony just countless other missionaries are ra- converted and then raised up and want to go and love the New Hebrides it's really neat But all the while, it's not his passion. He doesn't care about raising money. His passion, his heart is still back there at Tana. And so he's always pressuring them. Let me go back. Let me go back. And finally, the Missionary Society agrees to let him go back, not to Tana, though. They say, you cannot go back to Tana, right? It's too dangerous. It's just silly. They. So it's funny because it, it parallels exactly what happened with his dad, right? The, 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 the man has to come to his dad and say you may not go to church today it is too dangerous because of cholera and the exact same passion is flowing out of him I want to go back I want to go back to Tana and they're saying no we're holding him back you can't go we won't let you go so they negotiate and they agree to let him go to the neighboring island of Aniwa and Patton's mind is saying okay if I can reach Aniwa for Christ then I can get a door back into Tana they'll be softened up and maybe I can go back when he got to Aniwa, he, um, he was 42 years old now. And Aniwa was almost identical to Tana in terms of people, customs, pagan worship, murder, cannibalism, all that. Except for one thing. You know what the only difference between Tana and Aniwa was? They spoke a completely different language.
1: <laughs>
0: My heart broke for him. He spent years understanding the language, translating the scriptures, and he started all over again from scratch um, I said I was going to give you the fast forward version the The two differences the, the two things that made his experience so vastly different from, on Aniwa than from than from Tana are number one he had a wife with him again he got remarried and she stayed with him this time she never passed away until she died after he did she was there the whole time and men can I get amen like that made a big difference for him right yeah, And second, God miraculously brought a very important chief to repentance and to the gospel. And that made all the difference. So those two things. Um, let me take the first one real quick. His wife. The presence of his wife was so significant because it enabled them to start an orphanage. And this is really cool. There were so many children in desperate need on the island of Anila, as you can imagine, right? Parents, Their parents were murdered. It's kind of like Africa today, right? Their parents were murdered. So many children weren't wanted and just left out to die or abandoned and they would just take, they wouldn't let the kids like that. They would just take them in, obviously. And so there were just massive amounts of needy children and the patents basically just adopted all of them without all the legal process. That's what their orphanage was. It was just a place. They just adopted them into their family and had to build bigger homes so they could accommodate everybody. Um... The guys, that the patents, they just—they poured their lives out into these children, and I—I I honestly believe that that and that alone, by God's grace, changed the eternal fate of Aniwa right there. This is something a church can't say too much—that a a word-saturated family, a word of God-saturated family, is the single most effective ministry bar none. I believe that. There is nothing. That compares to parents laboring day and night in the lives of their children, to disciple them, discipline them according to God's word, and daily just speak the word of God to them and point them towards Christ. You, if you're a parent, you are the most effective evangelist your child will ever meet. All right? There's no exception to that. I do believe, and that makes that, by the way, makes um, adoption the greatest extension to the gospel, hasn't it? That's why there's this massive among Reformed churches right now. There's this massive adoption movement. It's really, it's really precious to me, because we're understanding that gospel is the heart. I mean, adoption is the heart of the gospel. We have no claims to Father God, but He takes us into our family, into His family, and just declares us His children. What is that? Adoption. That's why Paul and Romans calls it adoption. Galatians. The Pattons loved these children with the gospel by adopting them. And they, they led them every day in the fear of the Lord. They taught them about Christ. They taught them God's word. They had family worship, right? Again, every single day. And amazingly, some things started to change. It's really great. Interestingly, what do you think was one of the first signs that something was happening in way Close. Patton's like, what's going on? What's happening here? All of a sudden, people started wearing clothes. It's like, what, what in the world happened? happening? Well, he had been doing this for so long, but all of a sudden, God began to awaken and prick the consciences of these people. And the first thing that changed was they're, they're walking out of their house thinking, this feels a little wrong that I'm not wearing any clothes. Right? Isn't that pretty cool? <laughs> and then the, the second thing that happened is other people started to mimic his family devotions started having family worship time in their own homes. How can we overestimate the value of that? Having a, a specified disciplined time when we pray with our children and for our children and read God's word to them. <clears throat> that, those two things had an unfathomable impact on the island of Aniwa. Um, and I, I, it's pretty easy to figure out why, especially in the adoption case. What, what happens to children? They grow up, right? They adopted massive numbers of children And many of them were converted. And what happened? They grew up. And they stuck with it. And pretty soon, the Patton saw a generation of children become a generation of redeemed Christian adults on the island of Aniwa, And the the island was transformed. The second thing that made Patton's experience so different from that on Tana was this conversion of a chief I told you about named Amake. And this is where we see the last answer to our question. What shows the... What in his story shows the incomparable value of Christ? Well, the conversion of a Namaque definitely does. Let me, let me recount for you just for a second how it happened. The, uh, the island of Tana had no source of fresh water, which is amazing. A tropical island surrounded by water had no source of fresh water. Um, they literally, for millennia now, they had only collected rainwater and saved it. And when they were out, they were out. So their bodies over generations had just adjusted to having very small amounts of water, but the missionaries hadn't. So the missionaries felt like they were dying. They they were, probably. They were dying of dehydration. Um, And so John said, if if I'm going to stay, I'm going to have to figure this out. I'm going to have to try to find a a source of fresh water. So he resolved to try to sink a well. problem is he'd never seen it done. He didn't know any idea how to do it at this time this chief named Amache was he wasn't redeemed but he was taking a liking to, to John he was hanging out with them he was asking him questions and when John told him that he planned on digging a hole in the ground to get water he, the, the chief thought he was nuts Right? he says he looked at me with astonishment and said in a tone of sympathy approaching pity oh missy wait till the rain comes down and we will save all we possibly can for you and John Patton replied, well, we may die for lack of water. If no fresh water can be gotten, we may be forced to leave you. The old chief didn't want that at all, so he looked at he looked at John Patton and said, Oh, Missy, you must not leave us for that. Rain only comes from above. How could you expect our island to send up showers of rain from below? When Patton tried to explain it to him, the chief thought Missy was going crazy. And he said, Oh, Missy, your head is going wrong. You're losing something or you wouldn't talk such wild thoughts don't let our people hear you talking about going down into the earth for rain or they'll never listen to another word or believe you again <laughs> and he starts to he starts to dig up a well they spent all this time he gets all these resources together and the well collapsed and he was just on the verge of giving up because he was dying of, him and his family were dying of dehydration they decided to take one more go at it and they yelled one day and Patton descended into the hole and he came up with a little cup of fresh water and the island was never the same after that. Literally, it changed everything. The natives were so awestruck. They had mocked him and chided him and discounted him and not believed him. And here they are now, overwhelmed when he came out with fresh water. And they were even more amazed when he told them he wasn't going to use this water to gain power over them and become the chief of the island or something like that. He was going to offer it to any of them for free whenever they had need. And that was it. Literally, God used H2O to claim that whole island for Christ. It's really cool. And the chief, more than anyone else, was really touched. To show it, he did the most amazing thing. He asked the missionary if instead of Patton preaching Sunday at the weekly gathering, if he, the chief, could address the island. And you know that's going to make a preacher nervous, right? This guy is not even a believer as far as Patton knows. Well, Sunday morning, the whole, the whole island gathers together. Um, because I hear this chief is going to be addressing the people and Namake the chief begins to address them like this I just have to read it for you my people the people of Aniwa the world is turned upside down since the word of Jehovah came to this land whoever expected to see rain coming out through the earth it's always come from the clouds before wonderful is the work of this Jehovah God no God of Aniwa ever answered prayer as the Missy's God has done. And beating his hand on his breast, he exclaimed, Something here in my heart tells me that the Jehovah God does exist, the invisible one, whom we've never heard of nor saw till the Missy brought him to our knowledge. From this day, my people, I must worship the God who has opened for us to the well and who fills us with rain from below. The gods of Aniwa cannot hear and cannot help us like the God of Missy. Henceforth, I am a follower of Jehovah God. Let every man that thinks with me now go and fetch the idols of Aniwa, the gods which our fathers feared, and cast them down at Missy's feet. Let us burn and bury and destroy these wood, these gods of wood and stone. Let us be taught by the Missy how to serve the God who can hear, the Jehovah who gave us the well, and who will give us every other blessing. For he sent his son Jesus to die for us. This is what the Missy has been telling us every day since he landed. We laughed at him, but now we believe him. The Jehovah God has sent us rain from the earth. Why should he not also send us his son from heaven? Namake stands up for Jehovah. That was his sermon. Mm -hmm. Then Patton goes on to say this. This address and the sinking of the well broke, as I already said, the back of heathenism on Amiwa. That very afternoon, the old chief and several of his people brought their idols and cast them down at my feet beside the door of our house. Oh, the intense excitement of the weeks that followed, company after company came to the spot, loaded with their gods of wood and stone, and piled them up in heaps amid tears and sobs and shouts of others, in which we often heard the word repeated, Jehovah. Jehovah. Some could be burned, we cast into the flames, others we buried in pits twelve or fifteen feet deep, and some... More likely than the rest to, to, to feed or awaken superstition, we sank far out in the deep sea, let no heathen eyes ever gaze on them again. That was it. From that day on, Namake worshipped the Lord, and Patton discipled him, and this chief began to live such a compelling life that others began to come, and then they discipled them, and everyone just began to progress, and they weren't seeking easy decisions, they were discipling people for Jesus and as that began taking root on Aniwa the testimony of converted cannibals was so powerful and so compelling that praise God the entire island of Aniwa was claimed for Jesus Christ without exception Patton says every speaking soul on the island at least outwardly submitted to the soul worship of Yahweh now to kind of finish the story up I think this is the best testimony that could ever be given about a mission like Aniwa This show Mrs. Patton and their several children and many adopted children. They spent 15 total years on Amiwa, loving the people, pointing them to Christ, teaching them the word. When they left, the whole island claimed Christ as Lord and their culture was transformed at such a deep fundamental level. It wasn't even the same island anymore. And he had so discipled the converts and raised them up that praise God, when they left, guess who came to take their spot? Nobody. Nobody came to take their spot. The missionaries left because... They didn't need missionaries anymore. The church was fully self-sufficient, self-sustaining. There were natives, pastoring natives, and reaching natives is amazing. It's no, it no longer a missionary destination, because it's a Christian island. Isn't that amazing? <clears throat> and as Patton visited over and over, over the final years of his life, the church was continuing to thrive and, and grow and just do extra. Chief Tamaki said at best, Aniwa was turned upside down by the coming of the word of God, to that island. Praise God. To see those former cannibals declaring to their neighbors the gospel. To read of them laying down their former idols and to be burned. When I hear of the the pagan chiefs now counting their life as lost to go not just to other islanders but to other islands and tell them the gospel, I see the incomparable worth and value of Jesus Christ. Amen. So what do we take away from Patton's story? Uh, I think I'll just mention two things here. First, I think we learned that life—that your life is like a, a, a little auction stick. You know the little stick you hold up at an auction with your number on it? <clears throat> you're, you're telling the auctioneer how much that object is worth to you, basically, right? That's our life. Our life is on public display. How we live, our priorities, our, our family practices, our devotion, our scripture reading, the way we discipline and disciple our children, the way we abstain from some things, we are publicly declaring our value of Jesus Christ, for better or for worse. And number two, just we learn, goodness, Christ is supremely valuable. He's worth every sacrifice. He, he's a treasure. We're selling all that we have to gain, right? That, that might be literal for you in your life. That, that might mean living below your neighbor's standard of living. It, it might mean enduring persecution with joy. It might mean when you lose your spouse, you're the one comforting others as you show that you still have Christ. I mean, it, it could mean a million things. But you, you look at a story like this and see the true value of Jesus. So, if your life were like an auction, what price have you set on Christ? Again, what is your family? What is your life? What is your evangelism? What is your schedule? Your priorities? What are those say those things saying about how much you value your Lord? In a crazy way, as nasty as it sounds, Patton sold his life cheap. He suffered all things as loss. So we take up our cross as an instrument of death to die every single day, to say goodbye to everything we value and cherish in this life, to promote the glory of God. Friends, he is infinitely, inestimably valuable. And I pray the life of John Patton will keep proclaiming that message to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Patton and, and just. Uh, we especially thank You, Lord, for the enduring value of Jesus that has been declared to us through His life and testimony. You said that there are some who so live out the faith that when they die, we can say the world is not worthy of them. Lord, I think that's true for Patton. And I pray that, that we would count our lives so cheap as to so value the glory of Christ that that could be said of us. That we belong with you, Father. I pray that um, that our lives would be proclaiming an accurate picture of the value of Jesus. That we wouldn't be that we wouldn't be spreading a message that He is cheap or worthless or about as good as a nice car, but that we would be living out lives in such a way that people just see that He is the valuable treasure. He is the precious jewel. We're selling all that we have just to gain Him. Father, be glorified through this. We pray in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.
2: And Ryan, thank you very much. That has been a very inspiring message that uh, I think in the spirit of the Reformation. And the Reformation really goes back to the very beginning, in the beginning. As God formed us, there had to be a reforming of us. Um, God has redeemed us. And you look at Moses writing or you look at uh, the prophets, you look at uh, Jesus Christ, you think of Ezra and Nehemiah back in the Old Testament as they as they reformed there, it was always revolving a point to Jesus Christ, and the lives being changed so they could put on display the Lord's lives. you think of augustine, then you think of um, people even uh, that were before Luther, uh, whether it be groups of people that we don't even know, uh, or people like Whitworth, Cutts, uh, people like, of course, your Luther's and Calvin's and your John Knoxes and Booster's and, and John Owen and John Bunyan and Jonathan Edwards, all those Johns, you know. <laughs> you just go on and on and here we are, 2011, and we are the people to keep that kind of thought going on as the story we just heard he was a man a person a human being like each one of us I'm going to have the the band come on up and get prepared as as we think about it as we uh, finish off with one song Um, but that's what I want to do we're always to be reforming and I I think what I, I get out of John Patton is that as we look at that we're going to be putting on display each one of us, the person of Christ, I was never meant to be like that. God? You know, I can't do that. That, That's just a certain special person. Well, He was given the same gift that we were. The Word of God. Salvation. The grace of God. Christ living in Him. And we may not go to some island, but we know, wherever we're at, the Lord is desiring to use us. And so I take great delight in that challenge because each one of us should be challenged this morning. Despite our circumstances, which we so much concentrate on, let me tell you, if you look at any man of God, they went through terrible times that most people would say, you are a fool. The gospel is foolishness to the world, but the gospel calls us to die to self and, and live to Christ and present Him in your lives however that circumstance may be. Very challenging. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate that. And uh, we'll continue on today here in, uh, in, in this thought.